that help any? No. Sorry. I doubt that will happen. Asked if I wanted to preach like a charismatic. The microphone's not going to help that, Josh. No. I don't know if I can do this or not. I, I really have difficulty walking and chewing gum at the same time. So if any of y'all see me fall down, as long as there's not blood, somebody just pick up with my notes and carry on, okay? This one's working now? Is it working now? Got it? Fan. Oh, yeah, it's working now. Okay. Oh, let me, uh-oh. I don't know what I did to this one, but y'all have to fix it, okay? <laughs> Sorry. I don't know what that was. Okay, where was I? Okay, yeah, we're talking about pastoral ministry this morning um, and, uh, and, and looking over what that means, what that looks like. This week, I went online and I did a search of churches that are looking for pastors and what the qualifications are that they place within their job search. These are the kinds of qualifications that, that I discovered. Undergraduate degree from a nationally accredited school. A master's degree from a nationally accredited seminary or equivalent. Ability to develop and grow ministry teams. Experience in next generation ministries. That seems so nebulous to me. Experience in next generation ministries. If you get experience in it, the generation is gone and you've got to start all over again, right? That doesn't make sense to me. Here is a very detailed one. We are looking for a candidate with a master's degree, bachelor's degree considered. Again, that just doesn't make sense to me. We want a master's degree, but if you've got a bachelor's degree, we'll look at you. Whatever, okay. Looking for a candidate with a master's degree, bachelor's degree considered from a seminary affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. Shall have a four-year degree and shall have attended a theological seminary visionary leader. The list could go on and on. We could come up with all sorts of qualifications. In fact, think about this for just a moment in your own mind. If you were to develop, if you were to put together a list of the qualifications for someone you would consider for pastoral ministry, what would your list look like? What would be on your list? If you were to say, okay, we've got to find a pastor, uh, elder, we've got to find this, this person, what kind of list of qualifications would you have in fulfilling that search? Now, I want you to understand, there's nothing wrong with education. I'm a huge fan of education. I, I've, I've got a bachelor's degree. I've got a master's degree. I love education. It wouldn't bother me. To, I, I would be a lifetime student if, if I could. I, I love education. I love studying. I love academia. Nothing at all wrong with education. I'm a fan of it. There's nothing wrong with leadership abilities. Those things are needed. But I would imagine that if you compare most of our lists with the list of qualifications that the Bible sets forth, might be surprising just how different our lists are. So why don't we do that? Why don't we look at the qualifications that the Bible sets down for pastors? 
for elders. What does that look like and what's involved in that? Now, before we go too far, I want to do a little bit of review with you, okay? So for those of you who have been here the past couple of weeks, this will be review for you. For those of you who are just joining us this morning, uh, we'll, we'll kind of catch up to speed here a little bit, okay? A little bit of review. Question number one, who is the head of the church? Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. Remember this, Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 and Ephesians chapter 5 verse 23 both remind us that Christ is the head of the church. He is the head of the body. That means that we belong to Jesus. We collectively, we corporately, we as Boone Trail Baptist Church belong to Jesus just like every gospel-believing, gospel-preaching church does. We belong to Jesus. He is the head of the church. That's why he has the authority and the right to tell us how we're supposed to function. We don't have the option of just dreaming this up any old way we want it to be. We are under the headship of Christ and he has the authority to tell us how we are to live and how we are to function as a church. Now, let's move to, to the second step within that. Christ is the head of the church but who has Christ given the final earthly authority to within the church? The congregation. The congregation. We as the body of believers have the final earthly authority. This, this is built upon scripture that Jesus gives to us in issues relating to matters of membership, in issues of choosing your leadership, in issues of maintaining doctrinal integrity, the congregation has the authority to see that those things are done right, that they are done properly. And it is built upon the, the presupposition, the premise of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter writes this, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's what we refer to as the priesthood of the believer. What that means is that you have access to God through Jesus Christ alone. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go through me. My, my prayers carry no more weight than your prayers do. We have access to God collectively together and we make up a royal priesthood and that, that puts the authority within the congregation to make sure that those issues are handled correctly. The issues of membership, the issues of doctrinal integrity, and the issues of choosing leaders for the church. So that leads us to the third question. Who are those leaders? We began by looking at this last week. The Bible has two offices within the church, that of pastor, that of deacon. They are given different responsibilities within the church. And we won't, we're not going to get into the issue of, of what deacons are to do within this right now. It's outside of our purview right now. We'll come back to it, I'm sure, as we move along within this. But we're dealing especially with the issue of pastors. And I want to remind you, last week we looked at this. Three words that are given in the New Testament that all refer to the same uh, office within the church. The, the words elder, shepherd or pastor, and overseer. 
those three words all are used synonymously within the New Testament in reference to the pastoral ministry of the church. Now, in the document that the Considerations team has put forth, they use the word elder because it's the word that is most often used in the New Testament. You can use any of these words. It's fine because they're all biblical words. In fact, just as a, a matter of habit, I am, you're probably going to hear me use the word pastor more than any other word. It's the word I grew up with. It's the word that's there. And I'm an old dog now. And so new tricks don't come easily for me. So, but, and that's okay. You can use the word pastor. If you prefer to use the word elder, it's okay. All three of these words are used for the very same office. They refer to the functioning of the office and what pastors are to do. And so the congregation delegates authority to those men to lead, and the congregation is called to submit to their leadership. Now that's a weird thing, isn't it? Wait a minute, you said that we have authority, but then you say we're to submit to the elders? Yep. Well, how dare you say that? I didn't say it. God said it. I'm just telling you what God said. And it becomes a beautiful thing when this happens. It becomes a phenomenally beautiful thing when this happens and when we are all fulfilling our responsibilities together to one another. So we talked about the function of those elders last week. Essentially, just boiling it down, they are to feed and they are to lead the congregation. Okay? So what should the church look for in her leaders? Do we look for, for financial acumen? Do we look for educational status? Do, do we look for influence among the congregation, influence among the community? What is it that we look for in those leaders? And I know some of you are probably thinking, why in the world are we spending time talking about this? There are people who are dying and going to hell, and we're talking about leadership within the church. Yes. Why? Well, number one, because God does. God does in his word, and that's reason enough for us to deal with it, for us to talk about it. Number two, we read Paul writes to Timothy. He, we, we find this going on throughout the entirety of the New Testament, that there was the command to appoint elders in these congregations. And so this is something that is very important to God. The way the church functions is important to God that he might receive glory and honor in his people's lives. And so it's important to him. How the church, remember that the church is referred to as the body of Christ. And so, as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians, everything's to be done decently and in order. And so he has laid out the order of how this is to happen. And then, we're going to look at this next week, but I want you to remember that elders are given by Jesus to the church, their gifts from Jesus, in order to equip the congregation for the work of ministry. That is such a paradigm shift in, in our culture in America today especially. That is such a big paradigm shift from what we're used to. And so I want to encourage you to be back with us next week as we unpack this further in an understanding of how all of this plays out. But let's look at the qualifications, especially this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read from verse 1 to verse 7. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, 
sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, what strikes me most immediately in reading these verses, and just go back for a minute to the list you began putting together for what you look for in a pastor, what you look for in an elder. Go back and remember through the things that you said, oh, this should be on this list, this should be on this list. And one of the things that strikes me the most from the Word of God here is that Paul tells Timothy what elders are, not what they do. Now, isn't it true that we do the exact opposite in American culture? We define everything by what we do, not by who we are. And yet in the Word of God, it's the exact opposite. God gives the requirements for what elders are, not what they do. Even though he does have one, one stipulation there about uh, about what we do, but the rest of it is built upon character because character is far more important than the tasks that are performed. So here we have qualifications for elders. How to choose your pastors. There's six qualifications that are given here. Let me give you the six, then we'll go through, and we're just going to walk through them real quick, okay? We're just going to walk through them real quick. Here are the six qualifications for pastors. Number one, desire. Desire. Number two, character. Number three, ability. Number four, family. Number five, maturity. And number six, reputation. I'll give them to you again as we walk through this, but we're going to find them just laid out for us in these verses in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We go back. First qualification that is given to us in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is the qualification of desire. Look to what Paul says. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, I want to remind you of those three words that are used for the same office. We've got to get this. We've got to understand this, or, or it'll lead to all sorts of confusion, and we'll have all sorts of different offices in the church, as some other denominations do, uh, and, and, and I don't. I, I think that these words are used for the very same office within the church. The word that is used here is the word overseer. Uh, Paul also uses, or the New Testament uses the word elder, uses the word shepherd as well. And you can go back and you can cross-reference this on your own. Uh, I'm not going to go to these verses for you, but look this up on your own. Uh, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. In Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. You find these terms used synonymously of the very same office within the church. And here Paul uses the term overseer. The word, it means manager. 
It, it carries the idea of supervisor. It's made up of two Greek words, epi and skopos. Epi means over. Skopos, you, you scope something out, means to look at it. And so the overseer is just that. He looks over things. He takes care of things. He oversees things. And just why in the world would anybody ever want to be a pastor? I mean, ask yourself that question. Why would anyone ever want to be a pastor? Why would you want to live in the fishbowl? Why, why would you want to be subjected to constant criticism? Because there's a call of God upon your life. And that call of God will change your desire. And so Peter, excuse me, Paul says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. There will be a desire within the heart of the one that God is calling to this ministry, uh, pastoral uh, elder ministry that you have. There will be a desire to do this very thing. In fact, there must be a calling from God. And this calling pulls itself out in your life in a desire to do it. One of my former pastors, W.A. Criswell, used to make this statement. And he, he had a, the, I went to the college that he founded there in Dallas, Texas. And he would say to us young preacher boys, now lads, he would say, let me tell you, if you can do anything else, do it. In other words, if you will be content doing anything other than pastoral ministry, then do it. I think there's some wisdom in that. There's a compulsion that drives and a desire that is fed by the work of God in a man's heart and life. God changes our desires from the things we think we want to the things that He wants for us and look at what Paul says he desires a noble task the desire is for the task the desire is not for the esteem the desire is not for any honor that's attached to it there must be a burning desire to shepherd the people of God a burning desire to shepherd the souls of men and women and boys. and Yeah, there's other stuff that has to be done. We know that. We can read the New Testament and we can read our own culture. There are other things that need to be done, but the desire is to see people grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. I used to hear, I shared with you, I think last week, I used to hear preachers that would make the statement, rather facetiously, I, I know what they're saying, but... But still, I think there's just, in their hearts, there's a grain of truth to it when, when you would hear pastors say, oh, ministry would be easy if it wasn't for the people. <laughs> well, not head ministry is the people. You have the desire for people, the desire for hearts to be touched and lives to be changed with the power of the gospel. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. There must be a desire to it. You, you, you can't go into pastoral ministry kicking and screaming against it. You can't bring anyone else into that ministry. 
second qualification. There's a long list that's given here in the qualification of character. Look at it here in verse 2 and 3. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. You know, it's, um, it's something that um, I experience frequently at the end of the service. Somebody will come out and, boy, you really stepped on my toes with that one. <laughs> do, you, uh, do you know what it's like to have to preach to yourself? Step on your own toes? I read this list and I just step back and say, God, why me? We have the umbrella statement at the beginning of all of this. An overseer must be above reproach. Does that mean that your pastors have to be sinless? Well, I sure hope not. Because if that's the case, uh, I'll second the motion when you bring it this morning. Repentant, yes. Seeking holiness and purity, yes. Hmm. Above reproach. We get to this next statement, the husband of one wife. and Yeah, I know, here we go. It's interesting to me that when we look at these qualifications, you you have in verses 1 through 7 the qualifications for elders, overseers, pastors. And then verse 8, verse 13, you have qualifications for deacons. And and you have this same qualification given in in both of them, uh, the, the, the husband of one wife kind of thing. And it seems like for some reason in our culture, we've pulled that out and we've said this is the be-all, end-all for everything. Just give you an example. <coughs> I knew a man who was a deacon at a church. Remember the qualifications given for deacons as well. This is not to beat up on deacons at all. I love our deacons. We have a great men of deacons, group of deacons here. Um, I, I could probably do the same thing about pastors. But had a deacon that you're just mean as a snake. I mean, he's just mean. He's vulgar. I, I, had, I had never before in my life met the level of racism that this man held for people. But he'd never been divorced and remarried, so he must be okay, right? some reason we hone in on one and we forget all the other qualifications that are listed here and I'll tell you as we looked at this phrase and trying to understand what it means considerations team talked at great length about it 
We, we studied the subject. We looked at interpretations of it. We talked about those interpretations of it. We went back and forth. And by the way, if, if, if you don't struggle with this, you've not thought through it clearly. Because the goal is, how do, we, how do we balance the high standards of God for marriage and yet speak redemptively and carefully to people who have been hurt? Imagine probably that if I asked for a show of hands, how many of you not have, have gone through the pains of divorce but have been impacted by it in some way? Maybe a family member that's been divorced? Well, let's, let's just do this. Just understand that we're all in this boat together. How many of you have experienced the pain of divorce either in your marriage, child's marriage, family member's marriage, something of that nature? How many of you have been there? See, we're all here together. And it used to be the case that in Christian circles, we would uh, we'd slap a big red D on your back. We never sought to be redemptive in people's lives who were hurting. I speak that in my own life. I have family members that have gone through it. Silence of the church is deafening at times. Somebody to come along and say, hey, can we help? Hey, we love you. We don't want you to be hurt. What can we do? We live in a culture where marriage is under constant attack. That's because we live in a world where marriage is under constant attack. Because the enemy would love nothing more than to absolutely destroy homes. He's done it. He's destroyed lives. The history of this world is littered with people who have been crushed through these situations. We need to speak redemptively to people who have gone through this while seeking to maintain the highest standards that God has set. It's an issue that I have struggled with, <clears throat> well, as long as I've been in ministry. It's kind of like being a parent. Before I had children, I knew how to raise kids. Before I was in pastoral ministry, I had all the answers. I knew how to do this. I knew it all. And then what happens is you get down into the thick of it. And you realize, am I right? Is, is this view correct? In dealing with this issue, I've gone back and forth from one issue to another. Speaking about polygamy, it's speaking about faithfulness in marriage, whichever marriage that is. It's speaking about divorce. What is it talking about? And what's really troubling is when you come along and say, well, this is what it is. 
then you continue to research the topic and you find great men of God that disagree with you. You think, oh my goodness, am I wrong? Well, they must be right. And so I come over here. And then I continue to research the topic and I find other great men of God <coughs> who disagree and say this is wrong. And so the statement that's been presented for consideration to the church is our attempt at making the most of a difficult situation. And you know why it's so difficult? Because it's so personal. We, we can make this out to be about personal identity if we're not careful. Let me just say this at the outset. Regardless of where you are, if you've been divorced, if you've never been divorced, if you're remarried after a divorce, my desire for all of us from this day forward is to have the strongest marriage we possibly can have for the glory of God. I think that would be a good place for us to start in ministry to people who have been hurt in all of this. The list of qualifications continues. Sober-minded doesn't mean that he lacks humor. It just means that he behaves in a restrained manner. He's, he's opposed to excess. Self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, treating everyone equally, regardless of education, social status, economic privilege, or disadvantage. Able to teach. We'll come to that in just a minute. We, we read this statement, not, uh, not a drunkard, not controlled by alcohol or, or other drugs, for that matter. Not violent, but gentle. Not a, not a quarrelsome attitude. I've, I've heard preachers preach before, and, and they'll say something that they know is going to be controversial, and um, some, some pastors relish in that. They just love it. They, they love to stir up controversy. I just, I, I sweat like a pig on a hot summer day when we get to that stuff. Because I, I don't, do, do, do pigs sweat? Okay, something else then. That, that, uh, well, I sweat like me on a hot summer day. How's that? Um, I, I have no desire to stir up controversy and to make people uncomfortable. But I've heard preachers do this before, and they'll say something. They know it's going to be controversial, and, and they'll almost relish in it, and they'll say things like, well, you disagree with me? That's fine. I'll meet you out behind the church after the sermon. Well, number one, you're never going to hear me say that because I know you'd kick my tail, all of you. But number two, because I don't preach the Word of God looking for a fight. I preach the Word of God seeking to give understanding. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, not quick-tempered, not contentious. You have to be that way. You, you have to lack quarrelsome attributes if you're going to be an elder because you have to deal with hot issues at times sometimes even friends can get you hot under the collar you can't deal with it in a quarrelsome way but a gentle a meek peaceable way not a lover of of money paul says somebody that doesn't pursue dishonest gain he he doesn't love things and use people. He loves people and uses things. There's a big difference between the two. 
Someone who uses money wisely according to God's commands and desire for his life. Faithfully gives and uses his financial resources for God's glory. Those are the kinds of qualities that God lays out for elders. Now, I, I feel quite confident. I, I try not to make a habit, if I can, of speaking for others. But I feel rather confident that if I were to ask your pastors to come up here and if we were honest, we could each share with you times that we have failed in one or more of these areas. That, that, that maybe we've not been self-controlled. That maybe we've, we've been a lover of money. Maybe we've been quarrelsome at some time. But what is the trajectory of life? When errors have come, have they been repented of and replaced with godly solutions in life? The statement from the proposal says this, Scripture places the emphasis upon the character of pastors rather than issues of personality, leadership ability, charisma, professional acumen, or even academic attainments. We, we see those character qualities there. God does give us one uh, ability that's within this, and that's the third, uh, the third qualification. He says that elders are to be able to teach. The end of, of verse 2, you see that they are to be able to teach, able to convey God's truth to disciples. Remember the establishment of deacons? You can read about it in Acts chapter 6. There, there was a, a, a thing that arose within the church. They were coming to the apostles who were functioning in this kind of pastoral role. And they said, we, we can't do this and this, so we're going to have to get some people to help us take care of these widows within the church. And the office of deacon, I believe, was established in Acts chapter 6. And this is what those apostles said. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Acts chapter 6 verse 4 lays down the foundation. The only, the, the one single ability singled out for elders is that they are able to teach. Isn't that fascinating? Fascinating to me. Choose men who have the character qualities and choose men who are able to teach the Word of God. Proclaim the Word of God. This doesn't speak uh, of, of speaking ability. It doesn't mean pulpit theatrics or anything of that nature. It means giving an understanding of what the Word of God says and means to us. The greatest task that we have in preaching the Word of God I hear people say from time to time, well, you know, he's not a great preacher, but he sure would make a great teacher. <laughs> you know, the scripture makes no distinction. No distinction. Because pastors are called to teach the word of God. First and foremost, an elder is a teacher. Which means they must know the word of God and live a lifelong pursuit of continuing to know God's word and proclaim it to others. Number four, Paul deals with the issue of family. There's the desire, the godly character, the ability, and then family. Look at verse four again. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? In other words, how does a man shepherd his family? 
How does he love his family? How does he lead his family? Does he lead his children to know Christ and the word of God? Does he point them to Jesus and how Jesus would react? And church family, I want to be honest with you on this, okay? And, and some of this I know is tainted by personal experience. And so allow me to just bring personal experience into this. But I think it's founded upon the word of God. I had a, had a grandfather. He passed away several years ago. Started a church in Middlesbrough, Kentucky. And, and he, was, he was one of my heroes when I was growing up. Um, made a lot of mistakes in life. And what I saw happen later in life is, and as I enter into pastoral ministry, he would often tell me of the mistakes that he made and a warning to not make the same mistakes he did. But he did like so many other pastors have done throughout history. He, um, he sacrificed his family on the altar of the church. Church came first. His family knew that. Church called, he was gone. Family needed him, maybe. But the church was his mission. Only one of his children, and that's, that's my mother, is still active in the church today. The other three have a resentment towards the church because they knew they came after the church. We're given a requirement here for elders that they must manage their own household well. What that means is that the souls of my children are as important as the souls of your children. In fact, in responsibility, while one day I'm going to stand before God and give an account for how I have pastored you, I'm going to give an account for every one of your souls, I'm going to give an account for their souls as well. And it scares me to death sometimes. I've seen pastors' homes ruined because the pastor was more interested in what's going on at the church than what's going on in his kids' lives. My kids know I can't be at everything. They know I'm not going to be at every ball game. They it's, it happens to all of us. But I want them to know how important they are in my life. Not just because I'm your pastor, but because I'm their father. How does a man lead his family? a good indication of how he might lead the church. Number five, we've got to hurry. Number, in verse six, we read about maturity. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, Paul doesn't give a cutoff date for this. He, he doesn't say that your, your, your pastors, your elders have to be at least 35 years of age. It's, it's not a chronological age. It's, it's a maturity issue. In other words, what, what God is telling us here is that we need to give time for growth and maturity to take place in a person's heart and life. Jesus spent about three years with his disciples. 
When Paul was saved, he immediately goes into a time of learning and training from the Scriptures to see how Jesus fulfilled all of it. And there's a maturity that comes with that. Don't just grab someone that's become a new convert and put them behind the pulpit. That's what Paul's saying. Give time for growth to take place. Give time for discipleship to take place. We've, uh, we've been blessed here. We've got a couple of men that are willing to serve with us in an interim kind of, or an intern kind of capacity here. It's a great place to be for people looking at pastoral ministry and thinking this is what God has for them. I was blessed to have some men that provided that for me. Well, I sure could use a lot more of it. Final verse, verse 7, we see the final characteristic, that is that the pastor is reputable. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. See, I think that this naturally grows out of the list of qualifications in the character because if we go out into the world with all of our techniques and all of our strategies, but the world looks at our lives and we're no different, and they see that, and they say, you're no different than I am. Why do I want to listen to your story? And they're absolutely right in that. That's why the qualifications of character are here first. We go into the world different from the world, caring about the world so that we might win the world to Jesus. It should be true of all of us, not just your pastors, but it should be true of all of us. In, in fact, when you read through this list of qualifications, you'll find that these are qualifications that are given to characteristics, that are given to Christians wholesale. It should be all of us. The implication of verse 7, we, he must be well thought of by outsiders. The implication of this is that we will be with outsiders. Does that make sense? For them to think well of you, you've got to be with them, right? So the implication is that your elders will be within the realm of outsiders. Do you know how hard that is in pastoral ministry? I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you how hard my job is. I'm not saying that. I'm just, I'm just confessing to you. I can really use your help in this, to be honest with you. Do you know how hard it is to connect with outsiders? It's one of the things that I love about being able to go to these school events, ball games, things like that. Because in, in pastoral ministry, this is Sunday, this is Monday, this is Tuesday, this is Wednesday, this is Thursday. We're off on Friday, but lots of times this is Friday. And quite honestly, throwing a few Saturdays in there too. This is kind of where we live. And we always get to hang out with Christians. I love you. I, honestly, I love you. And I enjoy hanging out with you but it's hard for us to get to know people that are not. So next time you have the community over to your house for something, invite one of us. We'll, we'll buy our own food even if we need to. It's fine. Let us do that. Be well thought of by outsiders in our communities, in our neighborhoods. So that's what you look for in your pastors. Desire character, ability, family, 
maturity, and reputation. I said before, you don't have any idea what a convicting sermon is until you preach it to yourself. Like I said a moment ago, it's tough. Y'all get to go get convicted and invited if you want to. I'm standing in front of all of you with this. As are your other pastors. We have to be asking ourselves constantly, is this us? Is this me? Because, friends, this is a gospel issue that we're talking about here. How do pastors display this kind of character and quality of life? Is it because they're just such wonderful people on their own? Is it because they're just good? No, it's not. It's because of the power of Christ to change a life. The issue is not what you can do to change your life. The issue is what Jesus has done to change your life. When we read through this, I'm convicted, but I'm encouraged by what Jesus can do. Because God wouldn't say, I have to live like this, if Jesus couldn't make it possible for me to live like this. This is what you look for in a pastor. And yet so often we get a resume and listen to three or four sermons and have them come in for a trial and vote them in. We don't know the character of that person. When according to the word of God, for all of us, not just pastors, for all of us, character is king. So you know what's required of us as pastors. Can I tell you what's required of all of us? God says in 1 Peter that we are to be holy as he is holy. We're to be perfect. That's spoken to all of us, not just pastors, not just deacons, not just teachers. That's spoken to all of us. Be holy, for I am holy, God says. The only way to be holy is through Jesus Christ and what he's done on your behalf. You see, if you try to be holy... On your own, we call it hypocrite because that's what it'll be. You're not going to be holy on your own. You're not going to be holy until you come to Jesus Christ and abide with him and discover his power to change your life. Father, we thank you for this day. Father, again, it's, um, it's, it's been convicting. It's been tough. But Father, I pray that you would help all of us see the importance of this for the sake of your glory and the work of your church. 
that the world would not have just cause any longer to look at us and say, hypocrites. But that instead they would look at us, struggling as we do, that they would see the power of Christ to change lives. Father, I'm reminded this morning of how much I need you again. Reminded again of how hopeless it all is without you. So I pray for your strength. I pray for my fellow elders here. For Wayne, and Josh, and Stephen. That Father, the things you look for are the things that would be seen in their lives of the power of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Just an opportunity for you to think further about things and maybe respond